Hello, good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. Between now and nine, farmer protests in Germany bring the country to a standstill. On patrol with a parks and wildlife ranger in search of the farming-friendly falcon, and the Farmers' Alliance gets the go-ahead to contest the next election. tractors were counted at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin's government district, with city centres blocked with farm equipment in Munich, Hamburg, Cologne and Bremen too. The farmers have to ensure that food is there for the population, but in the end it's made so difficult for them. Now with the cuts and the like, that they're basically scraping by at the subsistence level and are basically no longer able to make it economically viable. And at some point, the money runs out. Well, as you can hear there, Germany has in many places ground to a halt in the last week because so many farmers have taken to the autobahns in their tractors to protest against the removal of the subsidy on agricultural diesel. Farmers have been joined by people from many sectors of society unhappy with the government and there is a lot of interest amongst farmers here in how all of this works out. Earlier on, I spoke to anne Catherine Meister. She is the deputy president of one of the German farm organisations organisations, BDL, basically the German Macronaferma. The German government just introduced that they want to take away the funds for diesel. Like until now, um, farmers would get back about around 21 cents per litre. And this, um, they wanted to completely delete that from 2024. So farmers would have to pay 47 cents taxes on every litre diesel they use in their tractors or the loaders or wherever. And um, the other thing is, until now, tractors and loaders and um, all these kinds of machinery, they don't have to pay taxes on them. And um, the government wanted to change that as well. And the reason they were actually looking for where to get more money is that um, they were lacking like a couple of billions. So this is not an environmental initiative to reduce greenhouse gases from diesel. It's a fiscal measure. Yeah, well, um, now they're saying it's not very environmentally friendly fund anyway. So if it's good for environment, if we take this away, this is their argument or this is their point now. But in general, um, this, they come up with it because they were lacking money. Yeah. What will the impact be on your farm enterprise if this subsidy is withdrawn? It's different to the farm size, and Germany has, in the south where I'm from, the farmers are not as uh, the farms are not as big as like in the north. But in general, if you look at a family farm now here in Bavaria, um, we talk about five to ten thousand euro a, ma- a year. They are angry with that, and that's a lot of money. And everybody wouldn't be happy to you know spend ten thousand euros more a year. But it's just, you know, the one point that was too much over the couple, last couple of years, there were so many new regulations, new laws and everything. So that was just the one thing that was too much. People know it's not just about the diesel. That was the thing that was too much. But now we're talking about all the situation of the government in general and the demonstrations. Actually, I was just at my local demonstration yesterday 
um, there wasn't just farmers. There was like plumbers and bakers and butchers and just normal people. They're just not happy with the government, what they're doing at the moment. It's just two years since we have the new government. And still, you know, people are really, really unhappy with what they're doing and the way they work. So is it possible then, as some economists have said, that farm businesses could actually afford the withdrawal of this subsidy, but it is just, as you say, the straw that broke the camel's back? Exactly. That's what it is. I think people could afford, um, but then, you know, people build new stables, they buy new machinery and they have, you know, they do some calculation and they calculate this money in. This is why it's not just a farmer's protest anymore. It's just a people protest by now. Yet the government says that these protests are playing into the hands of the far right because they have become so popular, so widespread. Are you uncomfortable that parties like the AFD, the far right party, uh, Alternative for Deutschland, would support your protest? Well, yeah, we see that they try to, you know, say, yeah, we um, support the farmers. and um, But then if you read into their program, they were actually like, yeah, we don't want any, any subventions at all. So um, they were trying, but mostly like the German Farmers Association or us as German rural youth, we um, really ask our members um, to keep an eye on them to make sure they are not there. There is like at my local demonstration yesterday, the organis- um, the people that organized the demonstration, they were saying, yeah, there was actually people that wanted to take over the demonstrations, but they really made sure made clear their point. We don't want you here. It's just about, you know, we don't have in Germany. We say we are not. We don't have any fantasies about you know having a new government tomorrow and um, calling out a revolution or something. It's just. We want these protests to be in a very legal, democratic way. Um, there is laws and there is ways what you can do. You're allowed to have demonstrations. You're allowed to, you know, call for action or call for a change, but just in a democratic and legal way. The protest that is planned for Monday is also going to be joined by rail workers. It sounds like you could bring the entire country to a standstill. That's actually a problem. The protest by the rail workers actually started yesterday and yesterday we still have a kind of a week of actions since Monday so people were really afraid that the country would like stop because there's no you are not able to use a train and you're not able maybe to take the car to work because farmers are blocking the streets somewhere. Are you worried though that your protest might be going a little bit too far and might lose support if the country does grind to a standstill over a matter which you say isn't going to bankrupt a farm business? Well, I don't think so, actually, because everybody knows how important farmers are for the scenery, for food, for if you want local protests. And the police, actually, for example, yes, just yesterday at our local protest, they were just saying, no, you're doing great. Like, they were driving with four kilometers an hour, the tractors on the... Um, on a fast street, um, like not a motorway, but still um, on a street where you could actually drive way faster. And the police came up and everybody was afraid. They would like say, no, don't do that. And the police was like, no, you're doing great. You know, it's always very legal. So I think as far as we still do it that way, um, we will be fine. 
and Catherine Meister from the Young Farmers Organisation, BDL. So what are the chances of something like this ending up happening here? An end to green diesel and farms having to pay the same as everybody else. You could imagine that something like that were it to happen would have a disastrous impact on the tillage sector, say, but around the world... Fossil fuels now receive $7 trillion a year in subsidies and the governments of the world are committed to ending that. Joining me is Paul Smith, the ICMSA's Dairy and Financial Policy Officer, whose job it is essentially is to anticipate policy change and how it is going to impact on farmers. Paul, good morning to you. Um, Let's just cut straight to the quick on this. Are you planning or do you see a world in which there's going to be no green diesel in the near future? Uh, Good morning, Philip. Um, Not in the immediate future. Um, It's very much green diesel uh, is the only alternative, the only uh, practical choice for for tractors at the moment. So I know there is electric tractors in the pipeline in terms of being developed, but that's 10, uh, 15 years away. So uh, at the moment, green diesel is, a, is the only only uh, choice okay. for farmers. But the direction of travel and policy on this is to remove these subsidies gradually. It is indeed. Um, if you're looking at if you're looking at Germany, they're doing it for a fiscal uh, point of view. Uh, from an environmental point of view, if these if these subsidies were to be uh, removed, obviously the incidence of that taxation falls directly on the farmer and the farmer has no choice but to pay for that that extra cost so it's it's very much a tax that would fall directly on onto the farmer and that, if that were to happen you know that has that has significant implications on on the, the cost of, of farmers how do you calculate that this would hit different farm enterprises like i mean as i suggested there for a tillage operation it could be ruinous it could indeed what we've seen is that uh, with with green diesel and prices fluctuating, which they have in the last number of years due to the, the war in Ukraine, that green diesel usage has stayed the same. So uh, with tillage farmers, for instance, they obviously have a higher a higher rate or usage rate of, of green diesel. So they would obviously be impacted the most. You'd have the likes of dairy farmers that would be impacted next. The livestock farmers would probably be impacted least, but... The, the incidents would fall directly on all those farmers. As there is no alternative to green diesel, like it's not it's not a perfect market in that other alternatives are available. We, we see when it comes to economics that if there are alternatives available, you can switch. But with green diesel, there are no alternatives. So it, there would be no switching away um, in, in the short term, at least. Who ends up feeling this? I mean, I know you just said there that it's farmers who will carry the can. Is it, though, will consumers not ultimately end up having to pay for it? It, it depends on where the tax is levied. OK, so if, if the tax tax subsidy on excise is removed, well, then that's directly on farmers. If, for instance, that this is only at an Irish level, OK, so at an Irish level, we we do it, it falls directly on, on the farmer because food prices won't be directly impacted by a taxation, a green diesel taxation in Ireland. If this was at a European level or a global level, well, then that would increase food prices across the globe. We saw that with the war in Ukraine, that fertiliser prices increased across the globe. That meant that cereal prices went up, fertiliser prices went up, food went up. But if we do this at an individual level at Ireland, the incidence would fall on the farmer directly. So it's less likely that food prices 
would be affected okay. across the world if this is at a, and it, it it depends on where on where the, the incidence or where the taxation is is levied. Let's talk about the alternatives, either battery powered or methane powered tractors, because there are some that are now on the market, not widely available as yet. I'm joined by Liam Hayde, national sales rep for New Holland Tractors in Ireland. Good morning to you, Liam. Um, let's deal very briefly with the battery options because they don't really sound suitable for most farms yet. Tell me briefly, what do you have? What is available? Uh, firstly, good morning, all. Um, so at the moment, we're in the very late development stages uh, as a brand in a 55 kilowatt or 75 horsepower tractor. We'll have a commercially available unit in the UK working next year, and that will be up to five in the following year. So it's really two years before they're available and there'll be very small volume. There are some other manufacturers currently offering a very small, like a compact or a garden sized tractor, but regarding large tractors, the issue at the moment is range and packaging of batteries and charging network, obviously. Okay, so that would be a light work tractor only. The methane powered alternatives here, though, do go to the full size, though, don't they? Correct. So we've commercially available, delivered and working in the country at the moment. We have two T6180 methane powered tractors. So they're essentially standardised tractors that have been modified to uh, run on a CNG uh, biomethane and can run and operate as a normal tractor within a normal fleet. And they are commercially available today. We now offer a larger horsepower machine as well to satisfy some of the bigger users at 270 horsepower. That's commercially available with us taking orders, but first deliveries are not for another six or eight months. But how and where are people getting their methane from, Liam? So this is the greatest barrier to where we're going to go with alternative fuels in the, in the very short term is access to fuel. So the people who are really taking advantage of the biomethane project at the moment are those who can generate their own biomethane which is not every farm at the moment, because obviously AD or anaerobic digestion is very much in its infancy in Ireland. There is scope, though, isn't there? There are pilot projects in the UK for dairy or beef operations harnessing their own emissions without an anaerobic digester. Yeah, so there is a, a company based in the southwest of the UK called Benjamin, who uh, our parent company, CNH Industrial, have taken the controlling sharing that are focused totally on capturing fugitive methane emissions from slurries, uh, compressing it down, cleaning it and using it to fuel vehicles, as well as fueling sort of off-grid engines. So it's allowing you to take your farm off-grid completely, uh, maybe running a static generator on CNG as well. How many cows to power a tractor for the day are we talking about? So the maths brief, the, the maths and rough numbers are 700 cows will produce enough um, slurry to harvest methane to run a tractor for 10 hours a day every day. Now that's scalable, so obviously not everyone needs to run a tractor for 10 hours a day every day. So we say that anyone who's got 150 to 200 cows in the right slurry setup could harvest enough gas to run their tractor fleet. Um, and what's the infrastructure like that's needed for that? So it's essentially a, a covered slurry lagoon with, as we see now, because there is a requirement to move this way to prevent, you know, rain entering your slurry lagoon as part of your slurry storage options over the six and eight month periods, winter housing periods. It's a very similar idea with a membrane that captures and stores the gas. It's stored within it and then a mobile processing unit will arrive on farm and will process and clean the gas down and store it for you okay. and leave it there. So it's not without a lot of kit and a lot of uh, investment. Put a date on this for us, please, Liam. How far are we away from the market being able to supply an affordable and, most importantly, a convenient methane-powered tractor? 
that's a really difficult question because I, as much as the, the Benjamin solution harvesting gas is, is a good solution, I do think that 50% of the fueling in CNG tractors or vehicles going forward will come from AD. So I think the project will only move as quickly as AD does. But I would like to say there'll be a significant amount of the fleet running on CNG within the next okay. 10 years. Within the next 10 years. That's interesting. Yes. Okay. Paul, we have an opportunity, it seems, to be ahead of the curve here and on a change that uh, you see as being inevitable. Yeah, we, we could. And it goes back to the alternatives that obviously diesel, We if we look at it, it's inelastic. We've no... Uh, we've no choice but to use use diesel. But if there is an alternative there, that works, and that that's an important thing that it needs to be able to work for both both a tillage, a dairy, and a livestock farmer. That people can switch them, but it needs to be incentivized. Okay, so that um, we've seen with the well, presumably uh, you can the transfer car- the subsidy from green diesel to subsidising installing kit like this over time. You could, but that the problem with that is that. You know, we have you have to get that that transfer of subsidy correct, okay? Mm-hmm. And you can get you can lose you can lose, I suppose, the the kind of incentivization of farmers across that that those farmers that use it very little are probably the ones that uh, would be better with the lower power tractors that are less likely to actually buy a new a new tractor, and that's that. That means that you need to get your you need to get your taxation and your incentives correct uh, in order to incentivise people to move across. Paul Smith from the ICMSA and Liam Haid from New Holland. Thank you both very much. Coming up after the break, the farmer friendly falcon. Email countrywide at rte.ie. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. 27 minutes to nine on your Saturday morning and we're going to continue now by taking a look at the fascinating work of a woman at the intersection of farming and wildlife in Mayo. Irene O'Brien, District Conservation Officer for the National Parks and Wildlife Service. Lorna Siggins spent a morning with her for Countrywide where she was visiting Shane Loftus's farm on the Upper Moy Estuary to check on the progress of some nesting peregrine falcons. And it's an old tower house, which is probably why the peregrine falcons have chosen to nest there too, because they're overlooking the bay where there's very, very good food source, because the Moy Estuary itself would be a very important site for wintering birds. How are you? I'm Shane. Yeah. How are you getting on? How are you, Lorna? How are you, Lorna? Hi, Hall. How are you doing? Thanks very much for your time now. Not at all. Yeah. What else would you be doing on a Saturday? I'd be walking around the field anyway, you know. It's a great excuse to come to a place like this. It's a beautiful area to farm, Shane. Oh, stop. Beautiful area just to be. Yeah. You don't have to be permanent to enjoy it. As we walk across the field in the wind towards the castle with the happy sound of waders in the background, Irene and Michal stop suddenly. They've caught a glimpse of something, as Shane has. A male peregrine soaring across the estuary. Over the river Right now. across the bay, yeah. He came up from somewhere below us. And he flew right over the water. Right. They don't build a nest, they're falcons, so they don't build a nest. They make a scrape, basically, to lay their eggs, and that's where they'll feed their young and stuff like that. They also want somewhere that they 
can hide in the like this year for example during the breeding season it was very hot in May and early June and a lot of the sites that we went to the female was trying to shade the young because the heat was unreal like I remember sitting on some some ledges and I'd say it was in the mid 30s and you could see the chicks panting So, like, when we went up to this site, the, the chick had moved way back in at the back because he was trying to keep away from the heat. So he was, he was way in at the shade, so he had to kind of reach in and get him. Raptors in general are farmers' friends because a lot of raptors will take rodents, so rats and other species like that. So, like, red kites were known to be, back in the 16th, 17th century, they were known to be the birds that were looked up to because they were the ones that cleaned up the cities and stuff like that because they fed on the rats. And, and do you feel that, Shane, as well? Are Absolutely. you happy to have yeah, them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I was a neighbour of mine, he, has, he had jackdaws here for a long time. And uh, it's funny, I said it from there last year, the year before, I said, you notice the old jackdaw population has dropped a bit? And he goes, no, did you say it? There's none around. Yeah. <laughs> they're part of the family almost. Because <laughs> okay. you walk into the field and if they're, if, 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 if she's on the nest, like you, you, I, I come in from that gate over there and the minute you hop the gate, she'll start squawking at you. Often, actually, when she's on eggs, the female won't leave. She'll sit very tight, and she won't even leave the eggs. She'll she's not going to leave her eggs and get you know for them to get cold or anything. And the male, they can be quite sneaky at that time of the year because the male will sometimes just slink off, and he'll circle around and f- kind of flutter his wings, but he won't alarm. But once the chicks are out. They get really vociferous. They're flying over your head and you're kind of questioning, is she going to take a dive bomb down the top of me now or anything, you know? And has it ever happened? No, 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 not, well, not yet. There's, like, there was a peregrine survey in um, 2018 and they estimated between 420 and 450 pairs. So I suppose peregrines now are moving. They're not on the red list anymore. They're not on the amber. They're moving to the green list, which means they're, you know, they're doing okay. And they have adapted in a lot of ways because their traditional sites would have been traditional upland sites and sea cliffs. And, you know, some of those sites are not really the most productive sites anymore because years and years of, you know, common agriculture policies that encouraged farmers to, you know, get high numbers of sheep and overgrazing destroyed a lot of the uplands and there was very little prey left in the uplands. They're now close to, more close to human habitation, like they've taken to tower houses and castles and obviously quarries as well. And they do very well because... The surrounding areas have a lot of prey for them and more prey for them than there is in the uplands. They, they choose to nest there even though the quarry, they're working away in the quarry and there's noise and it's like they're almost used to that noise. But if somebody different comes along, like when I come in, let's say, to ring them, they get really upset with me because I'm a different person. There's other sites, let's say, that they've left because you there's too much recreation there or like there's examples in the Lace District where there's a lot of climbing and a lot of hiking and people walking above nests where they've left nests you know we still have to be very careful you know and they're subject to persecution still isn't that 
fascinating how they are shaping themselves around the human landscape. Irene O'Brien there talking to Lorna Siggins on Shane Loftus's farm in the peaceful Moy estuary of North Mayo. As of yesterday evening, there is a new political party in the country, the Farmers' Alliance. It says that it will contest the upcoming local and European elections in which they say they're going to field up to 100 candidates. Pat O'Toole from the Farmers' Journal has been following their efforts to get up and running. Good morning, Pat. Um, It's getting crowded here. How how many new parties have we got now? So there's 29 uh, currently active political parties in Ireland and the Farmers' Alliance are the fourth newly registered party since the planning championships. Um, We had the Redress Party, uh, the Ireland People's Party and most recently Independent Ireland, which is uh, founded by the two TDs, Michael Collins and Richard O'Donoghue. The fourth in five months. Um, Have they managed to lure any recognisable political faces? No, um, not not national figures. Uh, pardon me. Uh, there's a dog who's quite exercised by the peregrine falcon on the previous <laughs> slot in in the next room. But uh, the, uh, the the Farmers Alliance most prominent personalities probably are uh, Liam McLaughlin, the founder, who is a Donegal sheep farmer who founded the Irish Ireland's Farming Discussion Group on Facebook, which be, has become a very popular portal. There's over ten thousand members, and Helen O'Sullivan. Uh, she is a farmer in West Cork who became quite prominent during mm-hmm. the beef protests in 2019. So uh, they are founder members and they have chaired um, and anchored the public meetings which they've held around okay. the country, two of which I attended. Uh, Pat, the Irish Times reports that they are going to be strongly opposing Green Party policies on agriculture. From the meetings that you have attended, would you say that that's a fair summary? And will they catch the mood of farming if they do? Uh, yes, I think that is fair. They uh, they openly would say that they believe the environmental restrictions being imposed by the government on Brussels instructions are are, are too much. Uh, the nature restoration law was strongly opposed. The uh, the nitrates changes strongly opposed, and the broad thrust of the climate action plan strongly opposed by the Farmers Alliance. Uh, with a catch on with farmers. In our survey of over 2,000 farmers prior to the planning championships, the Farmers' Journal asked the question, would you support a farmers' party if one was present on the ballot box at the next elections? And 72% of farmers said yes. Now, whether that latent support for a farmers' party will translate directly into support for this farmers' party, the Farmers' Alliance, remains to be seen. A lot will depend, I suppose, on on the strength of the candidates, uh, but also on the examination of the policy platform outside of Mm. the, uh, I suppose, the internal conversation which they've been having at their, there are public meetings, but I suppose it's like-minded people who've been coming along. There's very little on their website about what their agriculture policies might actually be. The predominant focus of the website really actually appears to be about immigration. Uh, I suppose the, their policy platform outside of agriculture is interesting uh, because typically farmers associate farm organisations have restricted themselves to not commenting on broader issues of public policy where it doesn't affect farming um, or rural life directly. For instance, say one-off planning uh, and roads policies would be something that the farm organisations would talk about, but not immigration or education broadly as a rule. The Farmers Alliance have no such qualms. They have a broad sweep of uh, policies which would be 
perhaps right of centre, some people would call them reactionary. They're opposed to what they see as the intervention of Marxist NGOs into our education policy. Um, they they are, have huge concerns about immigration um, and how it's being, I suppose, prosecuted by, by this government and previous governments. Uh, and yes, a, a broad policy sweep, which it's quite populist so it'll be quite interesting to see how that plays not just with farmer voters but with broader voters we do have I suppose we're in a post-lockdown mode where um, the lockdown was unusual in Ireland in you know in terms of the level of intervention by government in daily life and that has provoked a reaction um, which you could see there were there were people who were opposed to the lockdowns um, at the Farmers Alliance meetings I attended. And it may be that that will manifest itself okay. in the elections, which of course are only five months away. Indeed. Watch this space. Pat O'Toole of the Farmers Journal, thank you very much for talking to us. Well, the young scientists are going to be clearing out of the RDS this morning, making way now for the creative talents of the craft and design industry for Showcase 2024, which is in there next. Ireland's Creative Expo has been running for nearly five decades now and they are introducing this year a new competitive element to it with a Business of Craft Awards. There are nine shortlisted finalists and the awards have three categories. Best Newcomer, One to Watch and Sustainability Champion. Both in the studio and on the line, now we have a business from each of those categories hoping to win one of these awards. From Cork, Hannah Bachmo from Hannah's Bees in the One to Watch category. From Clare, Tony Hayes with his pal free Irish soap in the sustainability category and from Wexford but in studio with me here best friends and business partners Nina Sheldon and Gillian Duggan White and their business is called Sully and Juno in the newcomer category Gillian can I start with you first what is Sully and Juno? Um, Sully and Juno is Ireland's only sensory-friendly design house. So we um, design and manufacture um, clothing that has the needs of the wearer in mind. So things like soft seams or no tags and things like that. For, who um, are your clients? Well, um, our clients are all sorts of people. Our, our inspiration was um, came from a need that my family had. Um, my three sons are, are autistic and they had they have awful trouble with things like seams and tags and the feel of clothing. Um, so while we're not specifically aimed at, at people who are autistic, we seem to be filling that need for them. And nobody else was doing this? Nobody else was doing it. And there are some small little... Um, like little ranges in, in larger companies that are doing something similar, but nothing okay. like what we're doing at all. Um, Tony Hayes, your business must be sustainable at this stage because it's going now for 30 years. Palm-free Irish soap. What need is it fulfilling? Uh, good morning, uh, Philip, and thank you for having us on the show. Um, basically, we're, we're, um, we're supplying, uh, where we create and, and manufacture a handmade um range of skincare, natural skincare, uh, soaps, shampoos, and deodorants. Um, and we, we're basically filling fill the need for people that like don't want too many uh, uh, chemically laden products on their skin. And what is, does, uh, which is, because natural is uh, an often very abused word, what does it mean in your case? Right, it means that with all the ingredients we use, we, we they're all very, very traceable. We use um, natural vegetable oils, um, we use lots of coconut oil, um, heaps of shea nut butter, uh, olive oil, and all these um, 
food pure, skin loving, uh, nourishing oils. We we use also um, organic um, uh, uh, essential oils where we can get them. Um, and herbs and extracts. Mm-hmm. And crucially, no palm oil, because it is, of course, environmentally ruinous. Yeah. Now, to be to be honest with you, Philip, the, palm oil in itself is, is a fabulous oil, and it really makes a fantastic soap. But it's it's the cultivation issues that we have problems with, the environmental issues. That's where we have to draw the line. Uh, let me bring in then Hannah Bachmo from Hannah's Bees. Good morning, Hannah. How are you? Good morning, Philip. I'm I'm great. I'm How great. did you get into messing around with beeswax? Oh my God, I'm messing around with bees and beeswax and honey. Do you know what? I I came from Sweden about twenty years ago with a suitcase and a sewing machine, and I set up a business making wedding dresses, and I was at that for a long time, and then beekeeping happened. You know, I got obsessed with bees. I started growing fruit and vegetables in my garden and I just needed pollinators. Um, So I enlisted in a beekeeping course and as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> so it was about the fruit and the wax was almost a, bri- a byproduct or a waste product. The wax is a byproduct of beekeeping, definitely. But I, I did start with, you know, producing honey. That's, I suppose, why most people get into beekeeping in the first place. Um, so honey. Then I was the first Irish producer of the reusable beeswax wraps. And that's kind of feeding into that whole sustainability, uh, eco, eco-friendly uh, vibe that has been going on for the last okay, few years. Okay, stop there one second and mm-hmm. reverse for me. Beeswax <laughs> wrap. What is that? Absolutely. So we all know what cling film is and tinfoil. And we all know that you can't really reuse them. Um, And they're really bad for the environment. So the reusable beeswax wraps is cotton fabric that's infused in um, beeswax and jojoba oil and uh, pine resin. It it creates a, a slightly sticky waterproof but breathable wrap that you wrap your food in and they're they're reusable and you can use them for up to a year or longer so so using that every day will cut down on a lot of plastic really and it keeps Mm. your food every bit as fresh as the tinfoil fresher (laughs) fresher it yes it allows the food to breathe you know when you wrap up you know a a lump of cheese in say in in tin in tinfoil or Uh cling film it starts to sweat you know um and any any food that you you wrap up in beeswax um it doesn't do that uh, because it allows the food to breathe as well and the wax doesn't end up on the food no, it doesn't. No, uh, the wax is, is attached to the, the fabric itself. Yeah. Nina and Gillian, back to you first again, please. Nina, how did you guys meet? I love this story. <laughs> so about seven years ago, I um, had an epiphany about relocating. I lived in Dublin and I was working full time and my husband was working part time in the evenings and the weekends and we just didn't spend any time together at all in the house. We had a death in the family. We had a bottle of wine and we were sitting reminiscing and thinking about we get one life and what are we doing? And we had this Mm -hmm. dream of moving to the country when we retired and we thought, why are we waiting? Why are we waiting? So we put the house on the market and we moved and we moved to Wexford. And I had known Jill through a Facebook group. I knew of her. I knew her personality. And I knew if I ever met her in real life, we would probably get along. And uh, I bumped into her at the school 
steps when we were dropping our sons to junior infants. And I thought, I know that woman. <laughs> and we've spent every day together <laughs> since. Since Really? Yeah, yeah. And out of that came a business. How and are, out of that came a business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How are the, the labours divided between the two of you? Who does what? <laughs> um, I often joke that I draw the pictures and Nina does everything else. Um, <laughs> I am the arty, um, creative person and I'm not organised and I'm not really business minded at all. And Nina is very financial and very, very straight and narrow and very um, organised. So I kind of come up with all these crazy ideas and Nina sort of does the logistics to make them happen and to get them sold. Because I think that if it was just me left to my own devices, I'd, I'd really enjoy myself, but I probably would have quit after three or four because the boredom would have set in and I would have been like, OK. But how wide a range of clothing are you making? I mean, are you catering to all tastes, to all sizes, to all we genders? To the best of our ability, our range is quite wide now. We started off with jumpers for children and we do baby clothes and we do all the way up to adult 5XL now. So we get a lot of feedback from our customers. Mm -hmm. We work with it. We expand our range where we can because we're still a small business, but we cater for a lot of people. What is the problem with a jumper for most autistic people? Um, Well, it really does vary depending on the person. But um, the 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 we we kind of um we categorized it so it's it's the fabric the feel of the fabric the weight of the fabric and then it could be the position of the tags or the fact that there are tags at all so all of our tags now we're moving towards tearaway tags because there are legal um reasons you know, that it has to that be that it has to, obviously you yeah you have to yeah. have a tag on it but we're we're we've designed a tag that's so easy to tear off without damaging your fabric or without damaging mm-hmm. the sweater at all and you don't need to cut it it just pulls away um the position of the the seams so our seams are either bound or they're flat um like the join the joining of two fabrics leaves mm-hmm. a, leaves a, a line of fabric inside your sweater for for most people that doesn't really affect them but for some people who are very sensory that might be all they can feel all day um so do you end up with the seams on the outside or no we it? flatten them so we we have a seam a standard seam and then an additional um stitch will just flatten it down so that you can't it doesn't flick around inside of your shirt Nina, I think one of the impressive things about not just yours, but all of the business that we're talking to here is while they might sound like cottage industries, they're actually creating quite a number of jobs. How many people have you on the payroll? We have seven people working, myself and Jill and five others working for us. So it started off with myself and Jill in a converted garage, just me and her doing everything. And within six months, we realised we actually need help with this. So we have Kelly, who's our marketing manager and does all of our TikToks and Reels and videos and Instagram. And I couldn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's what's so good about myself and Jill is that we realise our strengths and our weaknesses. So I can't draw pictures to save my life. And Jill is allergic to Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> and neither of us know how to do TikToks. So we yeah. bring Kelly in. Hannah, how many people do you have on the payroll? Yeah, I was just thinking about that, Philip. <laughs> too, too many, if I prompted that question. <laughs> uh, there, there's three of us uh, employed in the business. Uh, but then, uh, like the girls there, I, I try to outsource all the things that I'm I'm not good at, you know. Uh, I'm good at beekeeping and I'm, I'm, I'm good at talking about bees. Um, but uh, so I have the web designer, the photographer, accountant, bookkeeper, uh, the graphic designer. So there's there's quite a lot, you know, there's, there's quite a lot. Quite and a I, lot of money going into the wider economy. Tony, mm. how many people have you got on your team? Hi, Philip. Uh, currently, we employ eight people. Um, 
there's obviously myself and Catherine, and we have we have other family members involved as well as um, some local employees as well. But you have a long supply chain that's very, very widely sourced as well. So there's money going all over the place from your business, Tony. From you mean going outwards from yeah, from our business? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We, we we do spend an awful lot of money out, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, one of the things that we we spend most of our money on will be raw materials. Um, trying to uh, procure raw materials, which we find very difficult at the moment because of our good friend Brexit, which didn't really help us yeah. at all. Uh, one of your yeah, main raw materials, one of your main raw materials, though, is uh, is rainwater. The, it, it, the, it, you, indeed, you can't yes, get much yes. cheaper than that, can you? It is, and I tell you what, there's no there's no shortage of it here. Thank thank goodness. Um, and it, basically, what we do, we we, we set up a, a rainwater harvesting system, so. Any rain that we get now, it runs off the roofs through a, through a filter system, and it's held in a, a, a one-ton container. It's then when we when we need to use it, then we just we open the taps, and it runs through a filter system. And it's really is it's it's the purest, most um, natural resource you can get. To be honest, what Hannah do expos like Showcase twenty twenty four mean? Do you tend to get much business out of them? Yes, uh, they they mean they're they're hugely important. Actually, I I was gonna say there about the rain first. I I wish for my bees' sake that it wouldn't rain so much. <laughs> 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 this this past year, we actually had a really poor crop of honey all over the country just because it rained so much. So mm. uh, to- Tony's gain is my loss. <laughs> Okay. Well, but for for the expos, uh, you know, they're hugely important. They they give us an opportunity to actually get out there and just to showcase what we do to meet existing customers and then to make new connections with others as well. So my business, uh, we uh, mostly wholesale and I have over 100 uh, retailers in Ireland selling my products. And I also two years ago started exporting to the States as well and around the world. And this, uh, the showcasing, it's a, it's a hugely important platform just to get out there, meet other creatives and meet the customers. Very good. Well, we're very happy to offer you all a bit of a platform this morning ahead of Showcase 2024, week after next in the RDS. To Hannah Backmo, Tony Hayes and to Nina Shelton and Gillian Duggan-White, thank you all very much for joining us this morning. Just briefly before we go, one of the most fascinating parts of the Irish landscape is going to come under the microscope today at an event taking place on Pat Mars Farm in Tipperary entitled Why Hedgerows Matter. Alan Moore from Hedgerows Ireland, very good morning to you. Busy day ahead? Very busy, Philip. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, we've got a sellout event which is called Why Hedgerows Matter. It's all about the incredible benefits provided by hedgerows, but it's an attempt to try and get even more out of them. Many of our hedgerows are not fulfilling their full potential, and the talks today will be about how we can get more out of them and appreciate them better. There's going to be a hedge-laying demonstration, a hedge-cutting demonstration, a talk on barn owls, barn owl box-making, dying from natural hedgerow products. So something for everybody, and we're very excited. This one is already sold out, even though it's free. You don't have any more space in this one. Does it encourage you to think about doing more of them? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, we've been delighted by the level of interest. And I think, Philip, it shows we're on the crest of a wave. I think hedgerows are being discussed more and more as a massive resource that we could really do well to appreciate better, conserve better, and appreciate what they do for wildlife, carbon, flooding, 
shade, shelter and the beauty of our landscape. Indeed, they are a constant topic of conversation on this programme. Good luck with that event, Alan. Thank you very much. That is all that we have time for. Mark Dwyer coppiced the hedge. Amandine Paso-Divine foraged the undergrowth for food. And Brenda Donoghue put a shape on the whole thing with a pair of hand clippers. That is all that we have time for. Sinead Mooney is on the way with playback after the news at nine o'clock. Have a good weekend. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.